Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be presenting a paper that I wrote dealing with the biblical character of Jezebel. Many of you may not know, uh, but Jezebel is getting somewhat of a makeover in modern critical biblical scholarship, especially in post-colonial and feminist scholarship. So I thought it'd be interesting to explore her rise from the ashes in this paper and see what all the fuss was all about. If you enjoyed this episode or the content of any of the Freedthinker podcast episodes, please consider becoming a sponsor. You can do so by clicking on the Become a Sponsor link on the blog or by finding the Freedthinker podcast on patreon.com. Also, please consider heading on over to the iTunes uh, store to give us a rating and a review. It really helps the show pop up in search results if we have a higher star count. So I'd really appreciate it. Right now we're at 4.5. I'd love to get back up to an average of 5. So please, please, please uh, consider going and giving us a review if you haven't. Um, There's about uh, 750 to 1,000 listeners on average, so I have about 30-something reviews. You do the math. A lot of you, uh, you know, love the show uh, and, and send me messages and comments to that effect. But please, um, uh, let, it, let it be known publicly. <laughs> show some stars. You can do it anonymously if you'd like. Okay. And once again, I do want to give you a little reminder. I'm probably going to be doing this on the next few months. I just want to remind you that I live in that desert and cultural wasteland known as Los Angeles, California, and summer is officially here, and it's super hot outside. So if you suddenly hear something like just this loud wind tunnel kick on in the background, I'm sorry, but that's the AC kicking on in my house to keep us cool and my family while they're sleeping while I do this. Um, and I'm not near technical enough to edit that out of the background. So there's that. So sorry about that. If someone wants to volunteer to teach me on Audacity how to edit that out, that would be great. Uh, if not, hope it's not too obnoxious. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's jump in and explore the biblical person known as Jezebel. Enjoy the show. once wrote of the soul that rejects God, saying, quote, Him the Almighty Father hurled headlong, flaming with hideous ruin and combustion, down to bottomless perdition, there to dwell in adamantive chains and penal fires, who durst defy the omnipotent to arms, end quote. For centuries, the shadowy character of Jezebel, opponent of the prophet Elijah, and adversary of Yahweh, has been the object of scorn in the West. Her name has conjured up images of harlotry and wicked rebellion against God and his people. 
For a woman to be branded as a Jezebel was to impugn her as a whore who is proud of it. However, that, as they say, was then. A new generation of post-colonial and feminist scholars is striving to salvage a strong and laudable woman from what they perceive to be the misogynistic rubble. Recast as a devoted wife, a faithful patroness, and a woman who dared have her voice heard in a foreign, patriarchal, and chauvinistic society, Jezebel is getting a makeover. This paper will survey the important narratives that depict Jezebel and her role in the narrative of the Book of Kings, engaging with various critical scholars who have endeavored to resurrect Jezebel as one of the greatest unsung female heroines of antiquity. It will then present possible applications of the Jezebel passages for the modern church. Narrative Summary When we're first introduced to Jezebel, it is only indirectly. Rather than being introduced as a dynamic character in her own right, she is introduced as a piece of evidence used to support the claim that Ahab, quote, did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any of those before him, end quote, at 1630, and that he, quote, did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him, 1633. Sandwiched between this twin condemnation, we find that Ahab, quote, married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him, end quote, 1631. Often, the manner in which a character is introduced to us in a narrative tells us much about the moral character, or at least the role that the person will play in the storyline. Jezebel is here depicted as a foreign woman who is married to the king of Israel and who leads his heart to the worship of false gods. It will become apparent as the narrative progresses that this kind of lawlessness on the part of Ahab, as he is spurred on by his wife, such as in 1 Kings 21-25, is not merely viewed as some sin in abstracto, but rather as a direct violation of the law of God. It is not hard to see the idolatry that is apparent in the passage as a violation of the first commandment, but the Deuteronomistic redactor is also drawing our attention to the commands concerning not marrying foreign wives who would turn the hearts of their husband towards worshiping false gods, such as Exodus 34:12-16 and Deuteronomy 7:1-4. Quote, sexual relations between Israelite men and foreign women become a metaphorical formula to describe Israel's acceptance of foreign deities, end quote. This would have been doubly so for a priestess within any such false religion, as Jezebel was. For the feminist scholar Phyllis Tribble, this introduction of Jezebel is systemic of the kind of misogyny that she would have had to face in her new role as Queen of Israel. Quote, surrounded by the nouns wife and daughter, Jezebel enters Israel in an arrangement between males, husband and her father define her, end quote. For Tribble, the location of Jezebel as daughter and wife is itself a scathing indictment on her sex. That countless men within the pages of scripture are introduced and thus identified as the son of some patriarch seems to miss her scornful gaze. Tribble then sets the stage for her interpretation of the passage in terms of gender and social equality, 
whereas it appears that the Deuteronomical author is more concerned with the fidelity of their characters to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and their obedience to his law, for it is these features that will make or break the continuance of the nation. The real issues are fidelity and devotion, not gender. The next time that we cross paths with Jezebel, it is also through an indirect mention of her name. Ahab had been looking for the prophet Obadiah, the, main, the manager of his royal household. We are told that Obadiah feared the Lord, and this is supported by the fact that Obadiah had hidden 100 prophets in the caves of Israel in response to the persecution instigated by Jezebel in 18.3-4. Apparently, there had been a period when Jezebel had commissioned acts of brutality against the prophets of God to purge them from the land. It will become apparent as the text progresses that Jezebel had attained unprecedented authority over the affairs of the state, which is observed by the fact that it, is, it was she and not King Ahab who commissioned the eradication of the prophets. It was by her royal decree. The fury of Jezebel against the prophets of Yahweh would be further exacerbated by the act of Elijah in putting to death 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, all who ate at Jezebel's table, we're told in 1 Kings 15.19. This event reveals to us several features about Jezebel that may not be explicitly stated by the narrator. Firstly, even during the drought and a famine in Israel, when King Ahab himself was actively pursuing water in 1 Kings 18.6, Jezebel would frequently wine and dine nearly a thousand guests in the palace. This surely was meant by the Deuteronomist to be a picture of the royal excesses that existed under Ahab's rule. The author is undoubtedly drawing the attention of their reader to the problems that arose in Israel as a result of her abandonment of Yahweh as her one and only sovereign. It is also important to note that these feasts were held at what the text calls, quote, Jezebel's table, end quote, 1 Kings 18, 19. It was not Ahab's table, it was her table. This seems to have been not only her continual practice in the palace, and she is clearly portrayed as the actual royal benefactor. If it would not have been viewed as blasphemous, we can almost imagine the Deuteronomist mocking her with the title Jezebel Jaira, for she is viewed as the one who sets herself against Yahweh to provide for her people, even in times of famine and drought. This tendency to view Jezebel as a kind of idolatrous power behind the king will appear again later in the narrative when she unilaterally acts against Naboth to acquire his vineyard for her despondent husband. One final aspect of these feasts would have surely been grasped by the original audience of the kings. We're told that in Israel, Yahweh's nation, where the king was to be the protector of the law of God, it is the prophets of Yahweh who are scraping out a meager life in the caves, while the prophets of the false gods, Baal and Asherah, are dining in luxury in the royal palace. If one of the thrones of the judges was to... Sh Sorry, one of the themes of the judges was to show that Israel quickly began to act like the surrounding nations following the conquest. The condemnation at this point in Kings is almost to the degree that Israel now actually is another nation. The king is guided not by Yahweh, but by Baal and his consort. 
In addition to this, we see Jezebel enraged by the act of Elijah against her prophets of her religious order when he has them executed for false worship. Once Ahab tells her about the events on Mark Carmel, Jezebel sends a message to Elijah saying, Elijah saying quote, so, many, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time, end quote, 1 Kings 19.2. Jezebel's statement mimics the proclamation of judgment, which Elijah decreed against the land, quote, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word, end quote, 1 Kings 17.1. There's a kind of irony that Jezebel may have intended by mocking his judgment upon the land within her judgment on him. However, there is an even deeper irony, or rather macro irony, of the intent of her statement, which is not fully appreciated until one reads of her death in 2 Kings 9. She was unable to make good on her prophecy of doom against Elijah, whereas God was able to make good on his, not only against the land, but later against Jezebel herself. It was not the gods who acted in judgment, but the God who was able. Nevertheless, her threat was enough to frighten the great prophet Elijah into hiding for a time. He likely recognized that Jezebel was the real threat behind the crown, as mentioned previously. The indicators that we have in the character of Jezebel have been brief up to this point, but the next time Jezebel is mentioned, her character comes to the forefront of the action and propels the narrative along. In 1 Kings 21, we're told that Ahab wanted to buy a certain vineyard from Naboth in order to plant a vegetable garden for himself. He even offered to give Naboth what he considered to be a better vineyard in exchange for it. In modern America, such an exchange would seem fair, if not even beneficial for Naboth. The problem is that it would have been a violation of the land rights granted to each tribe by Yahweh himself. Ahab, who had grown up in the customs of Israel, understood that he had no prerogative, even as king over Israel, to take the vineyard from Naboth. And so he went home despondent and laid on his bed refusing to eat. Then Jezebel enters the scene as what Tribble calls the devoted wife. Once she discovers the reason for Ahab's despair, she responds by saying, quote, do, you not, do you not reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. End quote. 1 Kings 21.7 Jezebel, being a product not of Israelite governance but Sidonian, could not understand why Ahab did not simply exercise his kingly prerogative and take possession of what he wanted. Her question, do you now reign over Israel, was a challenge to him and the view of the right of kings under Israelite law. The statement seems to view Ahab not with sympathy, but with pity. Rather than have Ahab solely his hands in what would have been a violation of what was state policy at the time, he stands aside and remains passive as she takes the reins. As king, his passivity effectively places the fate of the nation in her hands. Jezebel unilaterally wrote a letter to the elders of Jezreel and sealed it with the signet of Ahab, commanded that two men publicly but falsely accuse Naboth of blasphemy against God and king in order to bring out his swift death. Tribble lists this as evidence for the misogyny of the Deuteronomist. 
She claims that the condemnation comes from the author, not because Jezebel was planning the judicial murder of an innocent man, but because Jezebel, a woman, dared write the letter herself. And according to Tribble, she was an educated woman who was merely seeking to scratch out some power for herself in a society where that was nearly impossible. At this point, one of the major flaws with such a revisionist critical approach to the text appears. Zlotnick writes, quote, Yet according to 1 Kings 21.9, the letter merely contained a call for a local fast, although the redacted sequence of events strongly suggests that it also contained instructions regarding the staging of the whole affair, end quote. One might ask what textual evidence Lotnick has for such a strange, fractured reading of the text. The command for the fast and for the plot to frame Naboth come in one and the same statement. Why she believes that the letter, or sorry, that the latter is a redactional edition is hard to fathom, if not merely to give her recasting of Jezebel a textual foothold. Howe adds to this feminist retelling by stating, quote, these are the first words of the Deuteronomist records from Jezebel, and they are filled with venom. Unlike the many voiceless biblical wives and concubines whose muteness reminds us of the powerlessness of women in ancient Israel, Jezebel has a tongue, end quote. Nevertheless, Jezebel makes the move from being the persecutor of Yahweh's prophets to the oppressor of Yahweh's people. She shows that she was willing to shed innocent blood merely to acquire land that should not have been hers in the first place. Once the deed was done, Jezebel took possession of the vineyard and presented it to her husband, the king. In this instance, we see Jezebel again violate numerous commands of God while trying to use the Mosaic law to her advantage. In order to escape the Levitical law regarding the perpetual inheritance of the land in Leviticus 25.33, she used the Mosaic requirement of two witnesses for any capital charge. However, she not only incited the elders to bear false witness against an innocent man in violation of Exodus 20.16, 23.1, 23.7, and Deuteronomy 5.20, but she also violated the law prohibiting murder. At this point, the Deuteronomist continues to portray Jezebel as a false goddess, likely drawing parallels between her and the Canaanite goddess Anat, the female consort of Baal, who used violence and bloodshed to help Baal ascend to his kingship. This helps remind the reader that the conflict is a divine one, Yahweh against the false gods of the nations. Near the end of the narrative, we find the author giving us another glimpse into the character of Jezebel and her impact on the king. He writes, quote, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. End quote. 1 Kings 21-25 We're told that it was because Jezebel had incited him that Ahab delved into such deep depravity. On one level, this is a compliment to the force and influence that Jezebel seemed to have exerted over those around her. She was not a timid woman by any means, apparently, a fact that leads many critical scholars to attempt a scholastic rescue mission based on her courage to stand up to her patriarch. In fact, here, Tribble attempts to connect Jezebel to the good wife described in Proverbs 31, which reads, Her husband trusts her from his heart, and she shall prove a great asset to him. She works to bring him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She considers a field, then buys it, and from her earnings she plants a vineyard. 
She gathers her strength around her and throws herself into her works. Proverbs 31, 11 to 12 and 16 to 17. The problem with this kind of exegesis are manifold. However, Tribble may here have picked up on what appears to be a common polemical motif in the Deuteronomistic literary style. In consistently casting Jezebel as an archetypal distortion of God's proclamations, God's law, the prof uh, prophetic exhorter of kings, etc., it may be reasonable to view Jezebel not as the Proverbs 31 wife, but as the anti-Proverbs 31 wife. Not in the sense that she is the polar opposite, but that she is all the more dangerous for her subtle yet substantive, substantive deformation of her. Unlike the positive queen in a foreign land, Esther, Jezebel uses her influence to persecute and destroy the people of Yahweh rather than to liberate and protect them. In Jezebel's final scene, we find her grooming herself in preparation for the arrival of Jehu, the newly anointed king of Israel, who had already killed most of the previous royal family. Here, Jezebel is seen fixing her hair and makeup and then calling to Jehu from her window. In response, Jehu called to the eunuchs who attended her and asked, essentially, whose side they were on. Their action of pushing Jezebel from the window to her death was answer enough. Her body was then trampled by horses and eaten by wild dogs until hardly anything was left of her. A grotesque end, to be sure. There are several disputes over this passage that must be worked out in order to understand these events. Firstly, the question must be addressed concerning what Jezebel's intentions were in beautifying herself before the arrival of her executioner. We're told in verse 30, quote, she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window, end quote. Feminists have attempted to cast this as a high point for Jezebel. Quote, ironically, this is her finest hour, though the Deuteronomist intends the queen to appear haughty and imperious to the end. End quote. Others have argued that this was an attempt to beautify herself in order to seduce Jehu when he arrived. They will commonly look to Jehu's statement to Jezebel's son, King Joram, quote, What peace, so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many? End quote. 2 Kings 9.22 In addition to this, Proverbs commonly uses the image of painting the eyes as a sign of a woman of promiscuous character. While the narrative never explicitly indicates that Jezebel was unfaithful to Ahab, considering her connection with the worship of Baal and Asherah, cultic sexual perversions may be what Jehu had in view. Contrary to this, however, is the observation that the scene between Jehu and Joram is situated in Jezreel, on Naboth's field. This would appear to be an indication that the harlotries of Jezebel was likely a reference to Jezebel's devotion to Baal and how she plummeted Israel into all manner of false worship and death, rather than some insinuation of her being a slut from Samaria, so to speak. Jezebel's own statement to Jehu in verse 31 may add to this interpretation. It is, quote, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? Now, some have argued that the clause should be translated as a descriptive statement of power rather than a proper name, that is, Zimri. And even that Jezebel may have found Jehu's killing of his predecessor to gain power attractive due to her Sidonian heritage. 
Is it realistic to suppose that Jezebel finally saw in Jehu the assertive king that she wished Ahab would have been? However, what seems more likely, at least from her comment to Jehu, is that she was intending to mock Jehu as one who would, have be, would be a flash-in-a-pan king like Zimri had been. After assassinating his predecessor, Zimri had an abysmally short reign as king for only seven days. Considering the emphatic couplet that seems to be entailed by calling Jehu Zimri and then ascribing the action of Zimri to Jehu, murderer of you master, it is hard to imagine that this is anything but a statement of resolute defiance. Nevertheless, whether or not her intent was to seduce or taunt Jehu, she would not be spared. Her own eunuchs would respond to Jehu's charge and would throw Jezebel from the window. At this point, a much more subtle literary nuance seems to be hinted at in the text. The literary motif of the woman at the window has been a subject of several scholarly studies which attempt to show that this is an image not just of a royal woman, but a divine one. The image of the woman at the window representing a goddess would have been well known to the ancient audience. Ivory plaques depicting goddesses at windows have been discovered throughout the Phoenician region dating back to at least the time of Jezebel. One common feature of these engravings is that the goddess seems to always have well-kept hair, a fact that would explain the unusual description that Jezebel, quote, arranged her hair, end quote, in 2 Kings 9.30. This female representative of the goddess would appear at her window as a sign that she was finished with her marital preparations and was finally ready for the consummation of her union with the king. Considering that Ahab has already been associated with the cult of Asherah in 1 Kings 16.33 and 18.19, the Deuteronomist may be employing the woman at the window motif for a polemical purpose, showing that while Jezebel set herself up as a divine ruler over Israel, she would come crashing down her head and hands as the only remnants removed from her body. Ackroyd suggests, quote, it is almost as if she is being presented and rejected as the goddess herself, end quote. However, he could also have been pointing to other disrespectful women found elsewhere in the Old Testament. We see in Deborah's Song of Triumph that the mother of the enemy general Sisera was waiting by her window for her son who would never return, Judges 5.28. In addition, Michal waited, uh, watched David from her window with disdain as he danced before the ark in 2 Samuel 6.16. Nevertheless, Considering the undercurrent of the conflict of deities that undergirds the entire Jezebel cycle, it seems at least possible that the deific motif be preferred. Evaluation of critical views. While critical scholars do not always endorse the ethics of Jezebel's actions, the attitude is frequently that of a, quote, what would you have done in her shoes, end quote, type of evaluation, which seeks to honor her courage to act even if she did not always act justly. Howe writes, quote, Jezebel is an outspoken woman in a time when females have little status and few rights, a foreigner in a xenophobic land, an idol worshiper in a place with a Yahweh-based state-sponsored religion, a murderer and meddler in political affairs in a nation of strong patriarchs, a traitor in a country where no ruler is above the law, a whore in a territory where the Ten Commandments originate. 
In a kinder analysis, Jezebel emerges as a fiery and determined person with an intensity matched only by Elijah's. She is true to her native religion and customs. She is even more loyal to her husband. Throughout her reign, she boldly exercises what power she has, and in the end, having lived her life on her own terms, Jezebel faces certain death with dignity." End quote. We've seen several problems with this kind of rhetoric already, but here it can be noted that a methodological and a theological difficulty can also be levied against this kind of reading. The methodological difficulty is that of an imbalanced selection of facts to engage with. For critical scholars such as Tribble, the center of attention is placed upon many subtle and unstated features of the text, such as Jezebel's gender, that she never speaks with Elijah directly, but always through an intermediary, and that she is introduced in reference to her relationship with her father and her husband. Walsh provides us with a prime example of this kind of overselection when he writes, quote, Jezebel would have been proven an effective cipher for otherness because she was a triple qualifier. She was a Phoenician, a Northerner, which is a Samaritan, and a woman, end quote. Crowell adds that the true crime of Jezebel is that she was merely an, quote, uppity foreign queen, end quote, who was simply fighting to, quote, maintain her cultural identity, end quote. He continues, quote, through the Deuteronomist, Jezebel lies, deceives, murders, and openly antagonizes the religious establishment of Yahweh, end quote. What is glossed over and ignored are the moral and religious aspects of her actions as she sets herself as a violent oppressor of Yahweh's prophets and people. Crowell is right. The Deuteronomist does present her as a lying, scheming, murderer apostate. That's precisely the problem. Here, the Septuagint rendering of the text is helpful to illuminate the author's intention for his readers in casting Jezebel in such a negative light. Just before Jezebel's imprecation for Elijah, the Septuagint includes her statement, quote, If you are Elijah, I am Jezebel, end quote. Jezebel's name proclaims her allegiance to Baal. It means, where is the prince? Whereas Elijah's name declares his allegiance to Yahweh. It means, Yahweh is my God. For the editors of the Septuagint, the entire conflict between Jezebel and Elijah was unmistakably a representation of the conflict between Yahweh and the gods of the nations. They did not emphasize her gender nor her uppity nature, but rather that she had persistently set herself up as a violent adversary of Yahweh, his word, his laws, and his people. Not only that, the text imbues Jezebel with a kind of power unparalleled in any other passage in scripture for a woman, say possibly Deborah. As we've seen before, Elijah did not fear King Ahab and even challenged him openly. Yet when Jezebel offers one verbal threat, it sends him into a tailspin where he's ready to abandon his calling as a prophet of Yahweh to declare the word of the Lord to the kingdom. In fact, what's even more striking is that it is the death of Jezebel, not Ahab and his sons, that is seen as the moment when the power transfer to Jehu was completed in 2 Kings 9, 30 to 37. Here, the emphasis of the narrative seems squarely rooted in the issues surrounding law-keeping, fidelity to Yahweh, the right use of royal privilege set down by God, and the oppression of Yahweh's people, and not in an evaluation of gender roles. 
application for the church. It is not only an issue surrounding hermeneutics and exegesis that the feminist and critical reconstructions of Jezebel fail. In the issue of textual application to the church, the reconstructions of Jezebel as a heroine for women liberated from the bonds of chauvinistic society is as much a distortion of the word of God as Jezebel's own contorted usage of the law. For what could the application of such a revamped woman be if it ignores the facts that she violently opposed God and his word, that she perverted the very laws that God had given Israel to operate as a just society, into a means to oppress Israel for her own power and gain? What example can be learned if we ignore the widespread corruption of her power that it infiltrated the throne of Israel, the throne of David, and wed it to an idolatrous woman hell-bent on destroying the people of God and replacing it with devotion to a pagan god. Any application that commends Jezebel to the church ought to be left on the ground for the horses to run underfoot. Revelation 2.20 picks up on the theme of Jezebel as the anti-prophet who sets herself up against the people of God. John writes, quote, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. End quote. Here, Jezebel is reimagined by John as a harlotress who self-professes to be a prophetess, who is engaged in actively leading the church into rebellion against their god. He continues by stating that these acts are adulterous in Revelation 2.22 and is later alluded to in 17.6 as being, quote, drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the, witness, the witnesses of Jesus, end quote. For John, Jezebel is still a threat to the people of God today, or at least Jezebel as a type of those who would lead God's people into perversion and idolatry who would violently bring about the death of God's faithful witnesses to a fallen empire. Sadly, the condemnation of the church of Thyatira, who tolerated the prophetess Jezebel, or whoever she was the archetype of, still hovers over many churches today. <clears throat> we too often tolerate heresy, immorality, and all-out idolatry to mingle freely in our churches. This is how major Christian publishing houses can make their fortune by peddling literature that is often shallow and tepid at best to being downright theological whoredom against our bridegroom at worst. Like Ahab, many churches have wedded themselves to the spirit of the age in order to be large, relevant, and influential. Like Ahab, they do not take the fields for themselves, but are more than willing to reap the spoils that other have gained through blatant violations of the law of God. Yet in the same way that the woman Jezebel was thrown down and trampled underfoot, so too will those who lead the church astray. As Revelation 17:14 continues, quote, "These will wage war against the lamb, and the land will overcome the lamb will overcome them." because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen faithful, End quote. The people of God are still in a power struggle against the harlot queen Jezebel. The church must not be lured into a political marriage with the Jezebel spirit of the age of influence, expedience, or power. Where Ahab failed as king and succumbed to Jezebel, his wife, the church must look to the true king, 
the true son of David, Jesus Christ. He is the king who will free us from the bondage to our foreign oppressors of sin and death. He is the true Jehu who will crush the head of the serpent under the hoofs of his horse. Well, thanks again for joining me on this episode. I'm looking again to do some shorter bite-sized episodes, but I need your biblical, theological, or philosophical questions for me to attempt to make a stab at answering them. So you can submit those questions along with any comments, concerns, criticisms, commendations, or condemnations to freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, email freedthinkerpodcast.gmail.com, or by visiting the Freedthinker Podcast group page on Facebook. Well, join us next time as we ask ourselves, why did it take Jesus so long to heal the blind guy with his spit? Yeah. Good night, and God bless.